afternoon I want to talk with you about how to work with strong emotions, which Temple started this morning, and I want to just continue and offer you a practical way to work with mindfulness of difficult emotions. And this talk will mostly address working with difficult emotions because the positive emotions really don't cause us that much trouble. In some ways, they're actually harder to be mindful of because we like them so much. We just go with them. So they're actually considered to be kind of a second line of defense. Um, But that said, it's really the strong, difficult emotions that are problematic for us in our practice. So mostly that's what I want to talk with you about tonight. Hopefully you won't be left seated with difficult emotions. Um, And it's really meant to give you some practical way of working and hopefully some inspiration that it's really possible to do this, because it really is. Um, So, and also because so much of our thinking is fueled by strong emotion, especially that kind of obsessive looping rapid thinking, it can also help you develop uh, a different relationship to thought, a more mindful one. So last night, Wes taught us some ways to release ourselves from the grip of um, our self-centered thinking problem, and some ways to balance the need for survival and healthy self-interest with the ways that that gets completely out of balance through locating ourselves in this process of evolution, of evolution of consciousness through uh, the four mental evolution, through the four foundations of mindfulness and the evolution of our very bodies from single-celled organisms, just how impersonal and universal these processes are. And in interviews today, really several people told me how helpful it was that it helped bring some perspective, that perspective that Temple was talking about this morning, that we need to develop in the face of our strong emotions. But when we're in the crunch of suffering that really feels, and from a personal point of view, is all too personal, how do we actually do this? Um, it just seems like that perspective when we're caught is a million miles away. So what I want to, what I hope to do tonight is show you how the particular, the personal, even your sticky, stuck emotions can be used, can be a vehicle when they're met with mindfulness and metta to connect with a much vaster field of awareness that is really our universal shared human life and the life of all worlds and how we can touch to that here and now. And these are using mindfulness and metta. I mean, these are the tools you've been honing since you got here and you really do know how to use. Um, It's just that in the crunch moments, we we just revert to our 
old strategies, and these strategies are usually pretty outdated, often developed around the age of three or four or five, when they worked really well. You know, when you're three years old and you don't want to see or deal with something, you, and you don't want to be seen, you go like that. And you imagine that nobody can see you because you can't see them. Anyway, it doesn't work so well now. And so this is kind of an update. It's for your software, but um, the good news of neuroplasticity is that it also affects the hardware. We're going to use uh, a method that is known by its acronym, which is RAIN. And it's just it's four steps that are very sequential, but we can also, and do, cycle through them over and over. So they create a kind of spiral as we develop skill. And they are recognizing, allowing, investigating, or being intimate with, and non-identifying, or connecting with our nature. And these, it, they, it really is an effective way of learning to be present and okay with your strong emotions. So the first one is recognizing. And this it's sometimes not so easy. Last night, Wes described how he had to recognize that he had a thinking problem and that he was thinking from the minute he woke up until he went to sleep and there were appreciative chuckles, not because we were laughing at him, but because this is the first insight of insight meditation, that we are thinking all the time. So that seeing, recognizing, knowing what's happening is all important. And it seems so simple that we can just underestimate its importance, but it's such a necessary first step. And, and it's also, um, even if you're experienced, about, I think it was about um, 10 years ago, I was in a three-month retreat and I was really stuck. And we would see our teacher every two or three days for an interview, like here, just like you're doing. And I knew how to label, I knew how to note, I knew how to be mindful, but nothing really was helping. And I was just completely stuck. And I went in to see Joseph, who was my teacher in that retreat. And I said, you know, it was a noting practice that we were doing all the time. And I said, you know, I've noted, I've noted, and usually when I note, it vanishes, nothing happening. And he said, because he knew something about my personal situation at the time, he said, have you tried the note, hate? <laughs> Moi, hate? <laughs> you know, I had an idea of myself. I was a Dharma teacher. I'm a spiritual person. I don't hate. And I went back to my cushion, and I tried the note, hate, and two days of anguish ended. So to be able to be honest, that aspect of mindfulness, which is about honesty, and tell the truth of what we're seeing, to note it as what it is, the note has to be attuned to what we're really feeling for it to connect or help us connect. Um, and seeing doesn't necessarily change anything, but it's that absolutely necessary first step. It's often not easy to identify emotions, but 
you can always identify that feeling tone of whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, whether the mind and heart are liking or disliking it, disliking something unpleasant going on. You can recognize that. So this whole range of human emotion can be, and it is, a source of information for us. It's an intelligence source. It can inform our wise action. Or, on the other hand, this is a cartoon. I had to draw it from memory, so, but I'll tell you what it is. It's um, two snails talking to each other from The New Yorker. Uh, my drawing, and um, one is snail is saying to the other snail, I don't care if she is a tape dispenser, I love her. <laughs> so sometimes we may even recognize what's there and um, still continue, I mean, I don't know about you, I have definitely fallen in love with some tape dispensers. <laughs> and um, I even, even had emotions that might have clued me in, you know, right at the beginning, but we ignore them. It's called denial. Um, it's the opposite of mindful awareness. So the first step is recognizing. And recognizing means telling ourselves the truth. Uh, and being willing to receive what we know, not overriding our intuition, our uh, intuitive wisdom. The second step is uh, allowing. For 25 years that I worked as a psychotherapist, I had a quote up on my office wall, framed quote from a great wise teacher named Nisargadatta. And I'll read you this quote because it has to do with this second step of allowing. He says, by being in alert attention, by observing oneself with the intention to understand rather than to judge, in full acceptance of whatever may emerge, simply because it is there. That part I love. Why should we do that? Because it's here. We allow the deep to come to the surface and enrich our life and consciousness. This is the great work of awareness. By being in alert attention, by observing oneself with the intention to understand rather than to judge, in full acceptance, in full allowing of whatever may emerge. Simply because it's there, we allow the deep to come to the surface and enrich our life and consciousness. This is the great work of awareness. And we can see this even at nighttime. Many of you are having way more vivid dreams here in retreat than you usually do. And a couple people told me they had even scary nightmares that they don't usually have. So this too, you know, our monsters and fears that are held 
captive, usually, outside of awareness. It's like a spring unwinding when we come here and do this. And are you putting your hand up because you can't hear me? Or are you resting your head? Um, let me put this up higher and see if that helps. It's good to know that even the monsters and frightening things that reveal themselves, even if it's not when we're awake, uh, that this too is the great work of awareness, of this spring unwinding and revealing itself to us. And we don't have to analyze or wonder, how could I hate, how could I dream of somebody murdering me or me murdering somebody even worse? We don't have to ask that question. We're human beings, and we have the full range of what's possible for human beings in our own hearts. So it's easy to talk about allowing and accepting. It's not so easy to do. And over and over again, we hear the question, how do we do this? How do we deal with this flood of emotion without um, getting swept away? And Here's what the Buddha answered, because he too was often asked this question. How, dear sir, this is the student asking the Buddha, how, dear sir, did you cross the flood? How did you cross the flood? By not halting, friend, and by not straining, I crossed the flood. But how is it, dear sir, <laughs> that by not halting and by not straining, you crossed the flood? You know, it's easy to say these things, but how did you do it? When I came to a standstill, friend, then I sank. But when I struggled, I got swept away. It's in this way that by not halting and by not straining, I crossed the flood. So by not halting and not straining, he's describing that equipoise, 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 that Sylvia, that balance of equanimity that Sylvia talked about last night. So what would that look like in our practice? By not halting, by not giving up, by not sinking as we're flooded and overwhelmed by the content of our thoughts and feelings, all we know in that moment is the water is rising, help! And we look outside of ourselves either, rescue me, somebody please rescue me, um, or mindfulness just comes to a standstill, halting our awareness and denying what's going on. You know, I don't have hate, or our troops, our brave troops are winning all the wars they are involved in. or. <laughs> I'm having a whale of a time here at Spirit Rock. Um, anyway, whatever um, halt of our mindfulness, or by not straining to get past the unpleasant moment, um, to hurry, to rush, to get it over with, quick, 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 uh, or getting really busy to avoid it. And you know, it's actually possible to feel really busy here on retreat. You may have experienced this, you know, um, I have to do my hand laundry, and actually, when am I going to have time to 
wash and dry my hair and could I get down for tea and then get back in time for yoga or could I possibly go for a hike before dark? Um, can I fit in a nap? Where will I fit in a nap? If I take a nap, I want to time. It's exhausting. You can do this. I remember being on retreat. Um, I think it was the first Vipassana retreat they ever had at the Lama Foundation in New Mexico and it was cold and I was sleeping in a tent kind of far away from the hall and just getting obsessed with when I would have time to walk back up to the tent and get a heavier pair of socks. And Anyway, it's exhausting <laughs> to not halt and not strain, to just be present, making the effort not to linger, not to hurry. It means the kindness of a whole different stance. Um, and it's embracing a whole different way of being with strong emotions, recognizing what's happening, paying attention to it with the attitude of allowing, of accepting, of non-judging, of kindly interest. Of course, this is the definition of mindfulness. We can begin to develop the clarity, calm, and kindness to meet and absorb, to contain these floods of joys and sorrows in our life, to transform our suffering into wisdom through the power of this equipoise of awareness and our ability to stay present, recognizing experience, allowing, staying with ourselves, forgiving ourselves for being human, allowing ourselves, our humanness. One of my um, favorite quotes is from the Zen master uh, Joshu, and Joju in Korean and Shaocho in Chinese, and he said, why do we stumble on level ground? Now, the ground is pretty level here. Oh yes, I know, it's steep, the valley is steep, if you hike it's steep, but everything is done for us. The meals are cooked, the hall is cleaned, the, I mean, it's, you just go up in the linen closet, you get a bath towel, I mean, it's pretty level ground. <laughs> We aren't getting phone calls, hopefully, or doing our email, or dealing with the stresses of work. Um, so why do we stumble on level ground? And Joshu answered, it's only because the heart runs wild. I love this. It's an acknowledgment, a deeply compassionate acknowledgment of what happens especially when we are intensely present with our life. Especially here in retreat where everything is so keenly felt and as concentration and stillness builds and you can feel it happening in the hall, I can feel it. I hated having to be out of the hall writing my talk today, but we can feel it and as it happens that way things are amplified. And the heart runs wild when we're not here either, but we're usually either halting or straining. And um, here we actually cross that flood mindfully, and we see that even on level ground, we stumble. And it's okay, as Wes said, we're not our fault. It's only because the heart runs wild. 
And this is kind of a paradox too, because in allowing reality to be as it is, as if we could make it different, but we can't with our minds, pretend it's different, by allowing reality to be as it is, since it is that way anyway, we're making a relationship with it that's, um, that's based on clarity. And it's a paradox that I think uh, most therapists know that by allowing something to, and accepting uh, something, and even by positively connoting what needs to change, by not struggling with it, by surrounding it with understanding, with our metta and compassion, um, we actually stop our war with reality. And when we stop resisting what's true, we aren't fixating it. And it's actually free to move and change. This is called radical acceptance. And to be able to rest and relax in the midst of the very things we most hate or wish to change. Um, It's odd that that is actually what will most allow them to change. This is a quote from a wonderful, wonderful um, teacher in this tradition, one who really helped me kind of bridge my Zen and Vipassana mindfulness practices, Achan Sumedho. He said, you can develop your own trust and courage. You can develop your own trust and courage, your own confidence and fearlessness through learning to trust to relax, to open to life, and to investigate experience rather than resist or be frightened by it. So this is the third step. Rather than fight, resist, or get frightened and flee, run away, hide, um, hide our eyes, we can investigate and investigate our delusions. Um, This is a quote from a colleague. Am I really a little piece of shit around which the whole world revolves? (laughs) We understand this when she says this. So we investigate, what is this? We tune into the body. We turn to the life of the body first when we're investigating emotions because The body doesn't lie. It doesn't lie. So we recognize there's anxiety, there's fear. We allow it to be there. And then we investigate, what am I aware of right now? And we feel like the pounding of the heart, the sweating of the palms, maybe some contraction in the belly. And we can make a note, fear, fear, the pit of the stomach, the butterfly anxious, anxious, headaching, headaching. Okay, I'm noticing all this. Nothing is changing. Still noticing, noticing frustration is arising. Frustration, frustration, noticing. Can I stay with that? And gradually, as we stay with even this unfolding of unpleasant experience, there's a new feeling. Oh, doubt. This is never going to work. This doesn't work. Doubt, doubt is arising. Then resistance. This is really hard don't feel like it. And suddenly, there's a shift. 
it comes unbidden, it comes unexpectedly, it surprises us as we're just being with this unfolding of experience. And when we're rebellious and impatient and restless, impermanence is such good news at times like that. And when we are with these experiences, resisting, resisting, often what's underneath is some, uh, some sadness. And to be able to soften into that, maybe it's a memory, maybe it's a present sadness, but to be able to soften into that whole experience when we do that, we begin to understand that the content of any experience, it doesn't matter whether it's sad or joyful. I mean, this is the hardest thing, I think, to get in our practice, that it doesn't matter because it is the content of awakening in that moment when we're with it. It's the truth in that moment. Whatever the emotion, it's the content of our waking up when we're present to it. And so that willingness to let the feeling emerge, to see it for what it is, to simply be with it, again, with that intention to understand, not to analyze and interpret and trace back into the past, but just to care about it rather than to try and cure it. Caring, not curing. When we feel an intense emotion in the body like this, without pushing for anything or even intending for the result, although we do secretly wish it would go away, we try to be mindful of secretly wishing that it would go away, when we can be with it and embody it fully, become it without getting lost in it, getting that close to it, so intimate with it, with some mindful awareness, this is profoundly healing. This is called self-regulation or self-soothing. Soothing what Sylvia likes to call the startled heart. I love that. Developing the courage to drop some of our reactive emotions, some of our defensive patterns, and trust that actually, paradoxically, when we're not defending the heart, it's more protected. It's protected by the courage to turn toward what's actually happening, our actual, real life. When we turn toward the strong emotions, and when we do that, they actually become kind of good news. Um, when I was in Bodhgaya, which is the little town in India where the Buddha was enlightened, uh, and every year great teachers, lamas, come most from the Tibetan tradition to teach there. Um, in January, the Dalai Lama used to come year after year. And this year, the Karmapa, um, the incarnation of a very great lama that some of you may have known in his previous incarnation. The Karmapa was there, and he's young, and he was doing a few days of teachings, and we went to the last day. It was a good day to go to, because he was talking about the practical application of the teachings in everyday life. And he was talking about strong emotions, particularly anger. And he was saying that when an Strong emotion comes, and it's really too strong 
to work with very skillfully and you just feel it and you suffer and it's horrible and he was talking about the importance of not acting out um, there's not too much opportunity to act out here so we can just look at if you don't act out and he was saying these emotions when they come in this great big strong form they're special good news because you can't miss them <laughs> they're unmistakable you know, you're just not going to overlook it. It's not subtle. And so when things come in this huge way that is so unsubtle, we can recognize them. And why is it good news? Because if we don't see it, we can't work with it. We just can't. And that which we see, we can then begin to work with and transform. And there are so many ways to do this. And I'm offering you one with this four-step process. So the paradox is that once we begin to welcome these strong emotions because they're giving us information about things that we hadn't seen before, then they can be a bridge to this shared human world that I mentioned, to connecting with the shared life of all beings appearing and disappearing together moment by moment. As the Buddha said, in the Diamond Sutra, he said, so you should view this fleeting world. This is how I want you to look at the world. Thus, you should view this fleeting world. A star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. It brings compassion to look at life this way. Uh, a friend of mine was talking about being at a funeral and at this funeral there was this great big white box in the front of the room and she suddenly realized oh my gosh my friend is in that box it gives me shivers just to say it and spiritually you know we're all the same size like that program my daughter likes to watch, or used to, six feet under, is that what it was called? Six feet deep, we're all that same size. It brings compassion. Not because we're thinking, oh yes, our enemies will soon be dead. Uh, I, that's not compassion. Um, but, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really because, well, my teacher, my first teacher, the Korean Zen master, used to always say to us, and he would laugh when he said it, he'd say, ah, Soon dead. Soon dead. <laughs> but it does help the personal story connect with the more universal story to realize. Soon dead. <clears throat> One yogi um, from the March retreat this past year, she was practicing metta for a whole month. And by the way, I got a note saying, could we please use the word we instead of may I, because that would help us connect with all beings. May I is just the first step, and I was hoping that um, we need to help you move from I to we, and not just from we, but also may you. May I, may you, may we. May all beings everywhere, without exception. That's really the progression of this practice. So this yogi was practicing metta for a month, for herself, 
for her benefactor, for her friends, for those that she actually could care less about, for people in pain, for having a hard time, for people who aggravated her, her so-called, in the classical texts, her enemies, and then for all beings, everywhere, without exception. That's the movement of the practice. And she was doing that for a whole month, and she discovered how to open her heart and just melt into a sense, a real felt sense of metta, of loving kindness, and she was overjoyed about this. And she was so excited, she sort of imagined that metta would always fill her heart, that she would always be in, uh, maybe never reactive again, because after all, she knew how to do this. It was so real, it felt so powerful. And then one afternoon, she was sitting in the dining room, her heart filled with metta, completely overflowing. And she watched someone take an extra cookie, just (laughs) slip it into their pocket unobtrusively, and she was suddenly flooded with judgment. Her metta morphed into self-righteousness, which was immediately followed by disappointment. How could this happen? She was filled with dismay. And investigating this process, investigating her dismay, too, she actually found that she could hold both of these in her heart, the metta and the lack of metta, both of them. And this capacity to hold them both in the heart is at the heart of equanimity. Um, One of my former Zen teachers, he's actually 103 now uh, and still teaching, he calls it holding plus and minus in the same room. Being able to have plus and minus in the same room. In the psychoanalytic tradition, um, it's called ambivalence. And it doesn't mean ambivalating or wobbling or going back and forth. It means, again, being able to hold love and hate in the same heart. Because often the people we love the most, I don't even have to say it. You know what I'm going to say. So she could hold both the appearing and disappearing of her strong emotion, positive and negative, the birth and death of her loving self and her judging self, moment by moment. And that's how the unique stream of her personal narrative joined the wider river of just human life. The river of my particular suffering, of your particular suffering, joining the ocean of suffering. As Achan Sumedo says, it's like this. This is what it's like to be a human being. This is what it's like to be a human being experiencing love, experiencing hate. It's like this. So by fully connecting with the particular experience, and the Buddha wanted us to be able to feel our feelings while being aware of what we are doing, doing both. And in fully connecting with the particular experience, fully feeling it, there is a connection with the universal. This relative world of self and other, of you and me, when we fully connect, it can merge with the universal. And this brings great 
relief. It does. We're not encapsulated anymore in our lonely world of thought. I really see the major disadvantage of thinking, of being lost in thought, is that it's lonely. It's a lonely experience. It's lonesome when we're encapsulated like that in that world. And so when we fully connect with others in our hearts, in relationship, um, we really can merge with the world of intuitive wisdom, this universal uh, connected world, and, and transform the salt of tears, transform, even transform the unbearable through our willingness to bear it. And some of you have already done this. You have met that which is unbearable, unbearable. But you had to bear it because it was happening. And finding a way to bear it can transform even bitterness into compassion. And, you know, some of you do. You've already tasted this. You know this already. So just to go through it once again, Recognizing, what is this? Oh, it's fear. It's anger. And being alert to the things that you don't like to imagine yourself being, that really don't fit your self-image of who you are, like hate did not fit my self-image as a spiritual person, right? And when we develop an image of ourselves as anything, especially as spiritual you, um, when we develop a self-image of ourselves as anything, um, then that you know tends to become the lens that precludes letting in other things. Allowing whatever it is to be felt simply because it's here. And first, feeling it in the body. Or if not first, you probably many of you have already received in your interviews the instruction to feel it in your body. And at first that instruction is not a comfort because when you drop into the body it's unpleasant when you're having an unpleasant emotion. It feels unpleasant. Why do we drop into the body and feel it there? Why? You can answer. Some of you know by now. What's so great about the body? It doesn't lie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, rattling. Yes. It's now. It's not, it's true. It's now. We would say in that sense it's actual, yeah, yeah. And there are ways to work with unbearable sensation in the body, too. And I just want to say briefly, just one, um, maybe a little paragraph about that, which is, I've talked a lot, we've all talked a lot, about being intimate with experience in one way or another, coming closer to it, not turning away from it, really feeling it fully. If you have trauma in your background, and 
that's what's flashed up, you know, some kind of um, uh, PTSD kind of reaction coming into your body. The instruction is different. And it's different in two ways. One, instead of tuning internally into what's going on, it can be very helpful to feel externally in the body, just where you're located in space, where you're sitting, your butt on the cushion, your feet on the floor, you know, get grounded here. You know that expression, pinch yourself? It's like waking up from a dream and having some external mindfulness. And the other difference is that we want you to just touch that experience long enough to know what it is, and then you back off. And you back off by finding something pleasant to focus on. It could be looking out the window at this beautiful, beautiful landscape. Uh, it could be imagining somebody you love. It could be finding a place in your body that feels okay and really bringing attention there. Um, you know, usually the soles of our feet aren't bothering us too much. Something like that. Um, if, you're, if it happens when you're not in the hall, uh, you might just go for a walk. Forget walking meditation. You might just go for a walk. In other words, it's okay to change the channel because we don't want you to reenact and um, re-traumatize yourself. So it's like touch it, leave, and gather strength and inner resources to come back to it again. So it's a very delicate, different kind of process. Um, whether it's the body or the mind or both, and usually it's both. And then we investigate, we get intimate with experience, we look deeply and see if we can just be with it for a few minutes without exiting from the experience through analysis or interpretation. That can really be an exit from the fire of just feeling something. And again, I'm not talking about trauma here, I'm just talking about seeing whether we can enlarge our capacity and our strength and everybody is developing strength and confidence that yes you can do this and your love of the truth brought you here you took a whole week of your life you could have been i don't know in hawaii or something but you came here to do this so that love of the truth will really carry you through and uh, it will accompany you through even the darkest, um, the darkest places, and you will be able to bear it with confidence and uh, some measure of dignity and grace. And then the last one, this non-identification, disidentifying with experience that you've heard a lot about. Um, and I like the N, non-identification, it's not such a great N. I think I like to use nature, the way Wes was using nature last night. Nature, our true nature, which um, is clear and calm and sane and good. And that is one of the teachings I love the most. Um, the Buddha taught, Pabasara Chitta, that our mind and hearts are innately, he said, radiant. He said, shining. He said, clear as a bell. A little paraphrase. And he talked about 
the forces that visit the mind or heart um, as visitors. Adventitious was the word. Visitors, guests that appear and disappear in our consciousness. And then, you know, how long do we want to entertain them? And how do we work with them? But not who we most truly, deeply are. That's the point. So we're learning how to cross the flood, how to cross over to the other shore of the sure heart's release. This other shore where we're no longer afraid of our own minds, not afraid to look deeply. It's a great freedom. Albert Camus said, in the midst of winter, I found an invincible summer. And you can do this too. And you may find an invincible summer. And actually, if you persist, it's inevitable. You will find it. You will. The steadiness and the reliable refuge of your own minds and hearts. It's inevitable. So, thank you for your kind attention. Now we will sit for 13 minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.